Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and my guest this week is the multi-award winning novelist John Boyne. He has written 18 novels, including the New York Times number one bestseller, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which has been adapted for a feature film, a play, a ballet and an opera. Through the lens of his new epic novel, A Traveller at the Gates of Wisdom, we chat about human nature and the things that matter to us all. Love, desire, grief, ambition, creativity. No stranger to controversy, especially online, John and I also chat about the demise of respectful discourse, a wrong think and an ideal future free from crime, social media and gender. We also bonded over our mutual love of Excel files and order. John, if you are listening to this episode, you have got to check out the home edit on Netflix. It is like a free therapy session for those of us obsessed with order. Inspired by the show, I went to Ikea this weekend and I purchased 200 identical hangers and organiser inserts for all of my drawers. I spent a lovely weekend placing even more order on my clothes and shoes. Who knew that looking into my wardrobe would give me such joy? The identical hangers are a game changer. Oh, anyway, I digress. Thank you so much. Um, Anne Griffin actually recommended you to me. We were both guests at a book fair over in the west of Ireland in Westport last November. And we just hit it off and got on really, really well. I've known Anne since I was about 24, I think. Yeah, yeah. So she actually worked in Waterstones. She was my boss. She was the person person who hired me when I was a a young lad. And uh, we've stayed really good friends ever since. She's lovely. Yeah. You know, when you just meet someone and you just go, oh, I like this person. Yeah, we're kind of on the same wavelength. And so she had the wonderful success of her novel. She did. Yeah. I mean, she she just she made this decision about, I don't know, four or five years ago to to start writing and did a lot of work for that. She she joined the MA Creative Writing at UCD and then uh, she was publishing a lot of stories and then got a novel deal and just goes to show, you know, you can have a new life. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's actually one of the reasons we hit it off because I wrote my first book was published last year. So oh, okay, I'm, I'm older than Anne, I think. And uh, yeah, so I've been a pretty late starter too. And I, I went to Trinity also, uh, as you did. Yes. But I didn't go to university till I was 42. So oh, wow, I'm okay. a, real, a real late starter. 
starters. It's never too late, though. I mean, that's, that's no, like, no. Yeah. And that's actually something that I want to talk to you about as well. If you don't mind, I'm going to yeah. dive straight into some very personal stuff. I feel a bit nervous sometimes before these podcasts because I want to talk about the human stuff yeah. <laughs> and, and I hardly know people. And then I'm going to ask them a very human question. Oh, um, that is what, that's what interviewers do. So. Yeah, well, the thing is, um, so, yeah, in a recent interview with Roisin Ingle, you actually spoke about love, which actually a lot of your novel uh, is about, which I'm going to kind of come to and talk in a second. But first of all, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is your honesty. I value honesty almost above anything in all relationships, like with my kids and everything, do whatever you want, but just don't lie to me. Um, and your rawness when you talk to people, um, that really just, it's very moving actually. And something that you said to Roisin um, has really stuck with me since I read it. Um, and that's about love and about how you said you've never felt loved. And that I think the thing that got me, yes, that was sad. And we can have a conversation about what love is. But you sort of said, well, I'm 49 now and I'm going to shut down that part of my life. And I really hope you change your mind on that because 49 is really very young. Um, <laughs> it really is very young. I mean, it, it's possible I was having a bad day. But, oh, good. Oh, good. I'm so glad um, to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. Firstly, I think it is important that if you are talking about um, your books and, you know, if you're a, a creative person, I think it is important to be as honest as possible and open as possible. And I think creative people are generally quite um, open to that anyway, because you put so much of yourself into your work that you do want to talk about it. But um yeah, I, I think for, for in relation to that, it's just because I've had such I've had a rough kind of last four years that it, it feels like I, I don't want any more pain in my life. Um, I, I really just want to be happy, and I'm not sure that romance is something that has really given me a lot of happiness in my life. It's it, it really hasn't. And that while I would love to be in a happy relationship, and while I would love somebody to be you know a loving partner, I just feel at times that. The aspiration for that is is more than the the price one pays for going wrong. So yeah, yeah, I, I feel yeah. like I'm not I'm not going to actively look for it. If something you know, if somebody walked into my life tomorrow and yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I enjoy, that's fine, you know. But yeah, yeah, but, Will Young, I think you mentioned when you were talking, I, and I went, okay, I'm there too. I'm there too. I say that now, you know, six months from now, a year from now, I might feel differently, but I just feel right now, I just want to put everything into the work itself and you know, not focus on that so much. I think sometimes we spend too much time feeling that that is the benchmark of success or happiness in life is, you know, having somebody to share it with. And while it's important and it does matter, I don't think it has to be always the thing that we judge people by. Yeah, I, I you know what, I kind of agree with you there. I think also, I think literature, <laughs> um, media, films, TV, they have created this kind of monster in a way of love and relationships and as if it is the only route to mm. happiness and well, I, do, I do it myself in my books I mean yeah a love story is often at the heart of of a novel I mean it is very central to human life so I suppose I'm as guilty of that as anybody yeah yeah no no and that's what we do we tell stories we make up stories so I'm fascinated by the brain and behavior and that's really why I'm I'm interested in the human condition as are you and which is very much sort of the theme of the book A Traveler at the Gates of Wisdom it's an exploration of the human condition as I read it anyway um, and exploring our love grief 
ambition, creativity, all the emotions that we experience. Um, and over time, it's it's a fabulous conceit. And part of me, while I was reading the book and in the book, part of me is sort of meta-analyzing it and going, oh my God, how did you pull this all together? Because essentially, it's one story, but over 51, 52 countries yeah, over, and over, over 2,000 51 years. countries and a spaceship over 2,080 years. So, I mean, it could read as one story because everybody in the book, every subsequent narrator for each chapter has experienced the same life as the person before them. But uh, it, it's also going through all these different cultures at all these different moments in history. And I guess one of my central conceits was the idea that we don't change in that way, that the human experience is one which is repeated time and again. And um, there's not an awful lot of new emotions or new experiences that we can have, even if the world around us is changing. I think it's open to debate. I mean, I think it's an interesting point to debate, but it just seems to me that all those emotions and all those feelings are the same ones that everybody has always held and will always hold in the future. So so I actually am interested in debating that because I agree with you on one hand and then on the other, I think there's a subtle difference um, and it's a subtle and important difference. So I agree with you totally. Our emotions are the same. I think if people just recognise the humanity in each other, the world would be a far better place, you know, as mm-hmm. in that empathy and understanding. Well, this is just a person, the exact same as me, their life experiences, their upbringing, everything has helped shape who they are and, and they will have um, with some notable exceptions, and I'll come to Trump later, <laughs> but most of us have have empathy and understanding of other people and have that capacity. But where I disagree with you slightly, is, so yes, those emotions and those needs appear to be constant, and they are also influenced and subjugated by context, culture, all those things, you know, especially around your gender, whether you're female or male or any other gender or your sexual orientation, you explore all of those things really in this book. But where I change is, and that's because I'm fascinated by the human brain, and that is that we have the capacity to change and we have the capacity to learn and our brain is plastic. So it can grow and change and adapt. And that's called neuroplasticity. So so basically the brain can rewire itself. So we have habitual behaviors, for example, because that's the most efficient way for your brain to work. It is constantly looking for patterns so that it can save and conserve energy because it needs a lot of energy to just function, to keep you upright. So any pattern that it can find that it can automate, it will. And they become our habits. And the most likely response that we have to any situation. And that's why we tend to fall into the same traps and do the same things over and over again, even though at some level we might go, God, why do I keep doing that? But the point is, actually, if then you engage your conscious brain, the non-habitual part, you can retrain it and undo those habits and change how you behave and in a sense, change who you are going forward. So I think that's that's what's I, I think people, I, I think yeah, a person can do that. But yes. I think every time a new person is born we all kind of start at the same you know we all it's 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 not that the next person has reached that level of wisdom or something as yes but i do think there is a sense that through genetics and through genes that there are some things that actually do transcend the generation and otherwise we would all start without language 
I without yes. the capacity yeah, yeah. for language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what's interesting. So yes, whilst your book starts at the beginning of time, it doesn't start at the beginning of Homo sapiens. No, Did, it starts at the beginning you know, of yeah, AD. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Anyway, that's just, you know, we don't know the answers to those, but that's kind of the way m- my brain works when I'm reading that. But I was also fascinated by what you obviously have an incredible super brain because you had to do all this research. You had to keep threads. Thankfully for the reader, you gave the same initial yeah. letter <laughs> to the was... name of every character. Thank you. I couldn't have coped. Well, you, you want to see the, the spreadsheets on my computer as I was writing the book, you know, trying to keep everything in order. You know, the countries I'd done, the different artistic jobs that the narrator would have in each chapter, the names of each of the characters and how they would change with that initial letter always staying the same. It it was a complex piece of writing, but also I like doing research and I've done a lot of research for books over the years. And once I get into the story itself, I seem to be able to kind of keep it all in my head, really. And with the exception of a big chart I had on the wall and the spreadsheets, the chart was a map of the world with so I could put pins in and see where I was going. Yeah. Outside of the spreadsheets, like I, I'm not a big plotter, for example, in advance. I, uh, I, I do tend to make up the story as I go along. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, since my, I don't know, my third or fourth book, I've kind of abandoned plotting in advance. And I, I start with an idea uh, or character or theme or something and I just see where it takes me. And I kind of trust myself wow. to build the story and that if I put something in, it's probably going to be there for a reason and it might not reveal itself for quite a while. Uh, I've often even said, to you. Even to me. Because I've often yes. said that I think sometimes the novel is already here at the back of the head or at the back of the brain and I'm kind of digging my way back to it in some way um, because I will often put things in and I don't know why they're there, but it will just reveal itself and that's always a very <laughs> exciting moment. And and that's exciting for you to say that to me because I, I think, and I've spoken about this in season one to some other authors, I think Hilary Fannin, I had a conversation with her about it because um, I'm interested in the source of creativity and insight and what you're talking about. And I think actually also in your current novel, you do have moments where your narrator has thoughts that he doesn't know where they came from, mm. but they're the previous lives. Yeah, and exactly. in a sense, yeah. that's in a sense, that's the insight of a of, of a creative person. You get these ideas for for a book. As you said, you feel that it's all there. And and that that's the but reason. But I also why think I, that after because I've been publishing novels now for 20 years, that I can kind of trust myself at this point to go with that feeling. Whereas for example, whenever I do talks to young writers in universities or something, I suggest to them plotting in advance. Um, they know when they sit down every day what they're going to write because one of the important things, of course, at the start is to actually get to the end, you know, yes. and, and so it's easier for a young writer, I think, to do it that way. So I think it more comes with confidence and experience that you feel capable of knowing that you can write something that's going to be 150,000 words long but have no clue really where it's going as you're writing it, that you know your job and you'll figure it out. Yeah. So where I would see that then looking at, you know, what's happening in your brain is that you've actually understood and harnessed and you're actually giving, you say yourself and, you know, what is that in a sense? But I see ourselves as our brains. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It has our genes. It has our experiences. It's all in there. And I think what you have capitalized on and what if you have become confident, you know, your skill, you you know, over the years, you know, is when you say you trust yourself. Yes, you're what I think you're doing is totally trusting that all of that information and experience and knowledge and creativity is in your brain. It's all there. You don't have immediate access to it because, you know, we pluck and, you know, we have things that we can bring to the fore that we're thinking about. But actually what people don't trust enough is that if you put information in and just leave it there, 
I call it to marinate, <laughs> your brain will pull threads together and your brain will have those interesting insights, ideas that you're talking about sort of at the back of your brain, but it's actually, you know, really more here. Okay. It's pulling them together. And then when it's sort of ready, that it's it's kind of ready to cook and come forward, yeah. it comes into your forefront. And that actually and really- I find that very exciting when that happens. Because yeah, I, I've oh, noticed it's incredibly in books of exciting. when something like that will reveal itself. You feel a bit surprised and shocked, but incredibly excited because it's going to pull all these different strands of a book together and suddenly it starts to make sense. Yeah, and that's why I call this pod- podcast Superbrain, because your brain has done that. Like yeah. it's taken all those threads, all that information. But I think the key and the key to, to me for a genius writer like you is that you sort of trust that. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think sometimes what happens and I've talked to architects, etc. I give talks around the brain and, and you know, sometimes and that, that's what I say, sort of said to them in a recent talk is, you know, sometimes we work too hard at solving a problem. We give our conscious effort too much credit and not enough leeway to our brain to actually do the work for us in a sense. And so rather than forcing and working till 2am in the morning to solve a problem, your brain actually really needs sleep and really benefits from sleep. So put the information in and go, I'm going to sleep on it, that old sort of adage. And you wake up in the morning. It's funny you say that because I had such an experience recently where often when a book comes out, you know, different newspapers might ask you to write an article about something related to it, you know. And I had been um, in the publicity schedule. I had um, agreed to write a piece for the Sunday Business Post um, on a theme. For the life of me, I just couldn't seem to think of anything to write it about. And the deadline was looming, you know. But every time I thought about it, I thought to myself, don't worry. At the right moment, the idea will come to you. And sure enough, it did. And I wrote it then instantly. But I, I kind of, it's that thing again, as we were just saying about trusting yourself, that I knew even as three, three weeks had passed and I had one week to get it in, I hadn't written a word. I just felt in my head, uh, the right it'll moment, it'll, it'll pop into your head. You'll know yeah. it, you know. And it's, it's mar- That's why I call it, I wrote about it in my first book. It's marinating. Yeah. Put the information in and just let it be there. And your brain will start making connections because your brain, as I said earlier, it's related to habit. It's looking for patterns. It's always looking for links. So you got that information, the piece you have to write, and you kind of go, what, what can I write that about? I yeah. know nothing about this. And then suddenly your brain will sort of say, well, actually you do because yeah. it's related to this. And so you can write about it. And I kind of feel the same. I mean, I write nonfiction. I would love to write fiction at some point. But and that's why I was fascinated with the research part, because I kind of have to do that. I, when you said that, you know, it's all here. I know that feeling. So for me, I have to do a ton of research first. Uh, and that's all in my head. And I love that you love Excel files. I do too. I do. I'm, a, I'm a real list guy. I love lists. Yeah, me too. I have lists for everything. You know. I just said it to my editor. Actually, there's a piece in my next book is about brain fog. And there's a piece in it where I was writing about lists, you know, and I have lots of anecdotes and I it's it's about explaining science, but I try to do it very much just stories. And I admitted in it that, you know, I'm a list maker and I get great satisfaction out of crossing the items off the list as I've done them. And I have been known <laughs> Then when I go to a list to cross off an item and realize I actually hadn't put it on the list, my list is an Excel file. I have been known to write it into the Excel file so that I can take it off. It it kind of keeps me calm. It's not even lists of things to do. It's lists of, like, you see all the books I have here and this book's all over the house. And I have like like a little program where I can keep a catalog, you know, of, of knowing that things are organized. Yes. It kind of gives me some sort of like calmness in life. 
yeah. and I need yeah. things to be organized. My house is always very neat. Um, yes. You know, my, my cups are all focused the same direction. You know, the handles. It's a bit OCD. I don't know. But, but I just like order. Um, I do too. And, I, you know, I think it's probably related to anxiety as well, in, in a way, because for me, there's lots of theories around anxiety. But for me, anxiety is about the lack of control, you know, when you ha- can't control something. So I think it helps people. Certainly, I don't know whether you have any sort of anxieties, but certainly I would tend to have originally sort of had a, you know, an anxious temperament. So I think part of that is have control over the things that you can yeah. control uh, kind of helps. But I loved that in my research. And, and I I say this to all my guests, I feel like such a stalker. I have been swimming in Boyne for the, for the last three days. And, and I have to say, it's been really interesting and entertaining as well and very eye-opening. But uh, one of the things was that you had one celebrity home of the, the oh, yeah. year. And and the thing actually that interested me, and I do love homes and, and mm. et cetera, but you have your books organized by geography, like I just love that kind yeah. of stuff. Like this, this room is the, um, the, this is where I'll keep my British fiction. So right, okay. within that, then it's alphabetical by author and chronological yeah. by their books. So, yeah. but it means because I've got about 3000 books in the house. And if, well, you, if can, you ask me to find one, I can find it can. instantly. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And that to me is important, actually. You know, I don't yeah. want you running around the house trying to find things. I know where things are. But you see, it's really sensible. And actually, I mentioned that my book is about brain fog. And that's one of the things that I suggest to people. Like, if you put order in your life, if you put that, then your brain doesn't have to, it frees up space for you to do other stuff. So you having that means that your brain does not have to remember where you put X, Y, Z. Yes, up front, you have this huge investment of catalyzing. Well, I love that. Of catalyzing and putting things in place. And so your brain now can be free to do the creative things so it can invest its power in yeah, that. that and that's I've never really thought about it like that, but, but it does make sense. Um, and pretty much everything in my life is ordered so much that I don't have to worry about any of those things. It's, I mean, it even comes down to, this is maybe it's going to sound slightly ridiculous, but like I have a little file, for, you know, all the things you have in your house, like you think, where is there like elastic bands or where is there some glue right. or some twine or something that you might need? But I have a little like Excel spreadsheet of all of those <laughs> kind of things and the, the cabinet and the drawer. So it means if you just need an Apple plug or a, yeah, like a piece of twine that I'll know exactly where to find it. And yes. Um, yeah. It just makes me happy. I don't know why. It's I know, so, I know, me too. But you live alone now, yeah? yeah. So, um, and I would struggle now if somebody came in and lived with me. I'd be like, you can't move my stuff. I know. Yeah. yeah, it's just myself and my husband now. We had two sons and my son's now husband lived with us for several years before they got married. So there was kind of five of us in the house. But my husband and one of my sons are sort of umbrella term dyslexic, but they don't see patterns. <laughs> now with myself and my husband, I know where everything is, but he doesn't quite get, like even to this day in the fridge, I have to go, coleslaw's not dairy. Yeah, yeah. Don't put it on well, I, I, I went away a while back. I was just gone for a week, but my nephew and his girlfriend came down from Cavan and they stayed here because uh, they'd been in lockdown for so long. They were yeah. very respectful of the house and everything. But I, I spent days kind of just putting all my bits afterwards <gasps> back in the, like that they'd been moved slightly. <laughs> You know, right or 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 a glass or a cup. Maybe they did it on purpose. A glass or a cup put in the wrong on the wrong press, you know, and I'd be like, that doesn't belong there. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting. I want to go back actually just to some of the themes in your book. Uh, one of them is quite interesting um, and it's probably not one of the more obvious ones, but it's in a moment that jumps out at me in the book of that wisdom and that learning uh, in a journey. And it's when the narrator, I actually think I have it here, actually quote uh, that, yes, he realizes later that the integrity of his art was more important than the welfare of a stranger and that had led to so much misery and yeah. death and that was interesting so um character h yeah and i can't even remember one of the names but he was crippled as a child he's also a gay man and he had fallen in love with a character who was an apprentice yeah. but then the narrator said i can't afford to keep the apprentice on uh, i mean i don't know how much of the book i spoil when i say these things but i don't think it's That's that sort of yeah, yeah it, it's not that sort a book you know it's a book that even if you knew the whole thing yeah. you can read it and just you know it's the pleasure of going through the book and yeah just buy it and read it it is a one-off experience but yeah I just thought that's interesting so creativity is a theme right throughout the book and obviously yeah. you can write about that being a creative person and I also learned through my research that you're also a musician you play guitar and piano so your creativity goes beyond uh, words as well but you've this lovely conceit where the artistry or the actual art form or creative form that the the creativity of the the narrator manifests changes oh yeah across constantly changes throughout, through every chapter and, and and i wanted to do that because early on of course his father wants him to be a soldier and that you know war violence the kind of very um, traditional uh, typical kind of masculine traits are ones that he our narrator kind of walks away from early on and he has this other part of his personality that he needs to explore and it was interesting to me to kind of um find all these different creative pursuits and how mm. one would go about them uh you know when i would be you know researching how to how you make spears how you make uh rings how you make um necklaces or dress, dresses sandals you know i know nothing i knew nothing about those kind of things and you, you find out and then it's kind of interesting but then to keep it moving so that as he progresses through life, he gets better at each one as well. Um, I don't think I, I didn't make him a novelist until quite late on in the book. Yes, um, most yes. of most of his he was skills, a playwright with yeah, he was a playwright playwright Shakespeare. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the early sections, he's he's more sort of crafty. He's more sort of working yes. with his hands than his than his head. Um, but it was it was um, it was very entertaining to do that. Uh, I wondered at what point could I write one chapter entirely in poetic form or as a play. <laughs> Um, and I thought that I was complicated enough. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. And I, th I thought obviously the father-son thing is there throughout and really never a good relationship anywhere. And yeah. I, I'm just I mean, they're wondering. Is, they're very yeah. different. Uh, no, it's not from my own life because actually my relationship with my father is very good and always yeah. has been. Um, but um, they are two different sides of, I think, manhood in a way where one is the very traditional, you know, especially in those early sections where life at that time really was about war and men really just were soldiers and it was all about sort of exploring the world and uh, building Roman empires or Greek empires or Carthage, whatever. Whereas um, our fellow is, is always a bit sort of out of step in that way. He's, he's not your typical bloke, you know, yes. that his father would, would have liked him to be. Um, but he's okay with that himself. He never, he never tries to be anything he isn't. He's even no, as a child, yeah. he's, he's, He's pretty determined to be exactly what he wants to be and who he, who he needs to be. 
Yeah, and I think what's interesting as well is, you know, because there's so many stereotypes, I think, uh, when people write about homosexual characters, that the narrator is straight, for want of a better word. But he's the creative one. He's he's the soft one. And the repeated sort of gay guy has some nasty sides to him. Um, Which I think I, as a a gay writer, I I think I can do that because it doesn't look like I'm vilifying gay people. I'm not sure if a straight writer would get away with that. Now, in current times. Yeah, 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 no, this is very challenging. And I mean, I've been my entire life a very vociferous, opinionated, outspoken person and have felt that that is a way that I learn, that if I speak out what I think, then someone can challenge me. Mm. And I then learn, you know, through argument and putting my case forward, how valid my opinion is. And through that, then I can change if I realize, oh, I actually hadn't thought about that thing. So I value respectful discourse about issues. But that seems to be gone. Yeah, people are so locked into their own points of view, their own beliefs, and that they don't listen in conversations. No. They don't hear what other people have to say. They don't um, consider it at all. It's, it always seems to be now that if you don't agree with me on something, not only am I not going to consider what you're thinking about, but I'm also going to demonize you for thinking it. Yes, that, that, yes. That, you know, your wrong think is uh, symptomatic of your of how evil you are as a human being. Yes, but also it denies the fact that we are multifaceted and, you know, that one wrong think if we want to use that word and I did that horrible thing mm. listeners of, of the inverted commas with my fingers which my husband says I can't believe you just did that but the thing is that there is no road or room to progress if you just vilify and shut down all that does is create more of a divide and and I mean there's a really interesting thing and, and this goes back actually when I studied psychology for my first degree um, and that was that if you study language prior to great conflicts like wars which has become very obvious now um, you see a bifurcation of language a bifurcation it's us or them either you're with us or against mm. us everything is black and white and of course we know the world is not like that then if you analyse language of political leaders particularly you know that kind of discourse before great times of peace treaties or before things like the Berlin Wall came down, there has been progress. What you actually see is much richer language. There's a complete move away from the polarization of views. There is much more uh, dense, intricate conversation around that there are many shades of grey and that in order to make progress, we need to compromise or we need to try and understand each other and be educated and be prepared to educate. And sometimes we have to compromise. And that's gone. I feel... Social media has made that a lot of the case, I think, because if you take a, a platform like Twitter, which you know is limited to 280 characters and used to be limited to 140 characters. On one hand, when that was originally thought of, you know, the idea was an interesting one, you know, to just put your thoughts so briefly. But as time has gone on, Twitter was, I think, first came out in 2006. After 14 years, and when it's such a prevalent form of communication, what it actually does is um, it, it, it doesn't allow nuance, uh, nuance or, or, you know, thought out language or anything. You've got yeah. to, I mean, how many of us have tweeted something that has been 50 characters too long and you're having to cut and cut and cut yeah, yeah, to yeah. say it? 
Um, and it means that you actually aren't always expressing exactly what you think or how you would want to express it because you're just limited by the, the form itself. But I also think, you know, and it's something I'm interested in as well is how, so so our brains are constantly evolving. You know, that's what I was talking about language. A huge evolution occurred to our brains when we discovered fire because we could cook food. So then we didn't have to spend 10 hours a day eating as some of our relatives do, chomping down on, you know, to break down vegetables. Okay, now yeah, we yeah. could cook food, eat. That gave us more time to do things like develop tools, language, share. So that's a technology that transformed humanity. Mm. And one of my, and I'm a real tech user, you know, but one of my concerns is technology, particularly the internet, etc., is doing to humanity because we have, this is why I wanted this podcast to be face-to-face. Um, because I can see your expressions and we're expert at reading each other's expressions. And I think there's a generation that are now missing that. As we grow up, certainly as I grew up, you learned by trial and error. That's how we learn how to allow someone personal space. You know, oh, I'm too close to them or I'm not. Mm. Or, oh, that wasn't a funny joke. Oh, they may have laughed, but actually I could see in their eyes they really didn't think it was funny. So we're learning those nuances. And I actually do feel dreadfully sorry for uh, young men coming up now who everything's been online. We made mistakes at 13 or 14. Certainly as a straight person, you had that opportunity. I know even sort of with my own son growing up, it's, it's rather different if you're gay growing up because you don't have those same public spaces necessarily to yeah. do that learning. And so you can learn about relationships. Perhaps it occurs a little bit later in life, but certainly as boys, girls growing up when I grew up, you learned those things on the fly on the street. Yeah. And so by the time you're an adult and you're engaging in adult things, you have those tools and skill sets. And I feel that there's a lot of humans coming together now where they haven't learned those. And there's rules that concern me. They're there to protect. But you also, I don't know what's going to happen flirting, yeah. <laughs> you know, which but, is. You know, which, the thing that always amazes me is like if you go to a concert and people are standing there, and they spend the entire concert like this. Right. You know, and they're not watching the concert, but they're yeah. recording the concert. And you think. Why are you recording? You're recording. Are you really going to go home and watch it again? But you're watching it on screen when you could have watched it in real life. And yes. you're, you're not watching it. I find that a very strange. I had an experience of that with friends. I was very fortunate in November. We went to Iceland and we were in, uh, you know, one of those hot. I don't know if you've ever been there, but oh, the one lagoon, of those hot. The lagoon thing? Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. yeah, it wasn't the big one. It was actually a smaller one and okay. it was lovely and it was less commercialized. And, you know, and the geezers were popping up literally uh, beside you. So we were in this lovely hot water. It was it was freezing. In fact, when we went to the Blue Lagoon the next day, we had um, hailstones on us, yeah. which was a very strange experience. But this beautiful young girl, young woman, I suppose, she was probably in her early 20s. She came into the pool. She had her camera on a selfie stick and she got into it and she posed and smiled and and pointed at where she was. And we were just standing four albums, you know, watching her mesmerized. Right. I bet she, she never got- actually took it in. She got what she wanted. So it was just a photograph of herself. And then she got out again and left. So she never actually experienced. But I'm sure she got the most amazing shots to share. No, it baffles me. Like, she actually didn't experience it at all. No, no. And, And that's why I feel that we learn through experience. And 
I think what's happened is that people are only existing through others, and that's not a route to happiness. Through others' approval as well. Through others' approval. Because each of those pictures, what you want, it's it's a number. It's the number of likes. It's the you know, it, it really just comes down to a number. It's it's like you might feel better if you see the number in your bank account raise that it's the same yes. that if you tweet something or Instagram something and and it, it takes off and like, you know, it, it gets a couple of thousand likes or something that it gives you a dopamine hit. And yeah, but you then feel, you want more. You feel approved of. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm writing a novel at the moment on this very subject um, because I'm writing a novel about social media. And the effect right. it has on people, and um, it's a comic novel, but it's you right. know about the disastrous effect that it can have on people, and how it kind of has changed the way we interact. Um, oh, I could have a whole conversation with yeah, you just about. That. It also changes how we want people to see us. The the kind of moral yes. superiority that exists online of um, yes. wanting to be always to be praised, but also to be seen as morally as being virtuous and yes. uh, and being able to and tell other people signaling and, yeah. when they're not being virtuous. Yes. You know, yes. And being able to yes. condemn them for that. In one of my interviews from season one, I spoke with a journalist, uh, Hilary Freeman, and she wrote oh, yeah. an article about fat shaming and obesity health issues. She spoke about the not only threats to herself, but people saying stuff about killing her daughter, who was two years of age at the time. Yeah. The thing that I don't understand is how can you be virtuous and then threaten to rape and kill someone uh, well, but, because I mean, this, of their views? I, I, I just don't get that. On, online, I think that there there is this weird thing about the way people speak to each other and they would never say these things to someone else in real life. I think they think that it's just they're talking to robots or something, that yes. it doesn't matter. Like some of these people could be lovely kind of like elderly little old ladies or something. And they could be saying, you know, you should die. You should be raped. You should be murdered. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then they close it and they go and make themselves some lunch. And yeah, they, yeah. they don't think about actually the effect. A real person. And I, yeah, and I tend I... to not read. Um, I, I really steer away from reading notifications or and I never read in a newspaper interview or something. I wouldn't read the, the, the comments. comments. I just wouldn't. Because yeah, I learned that lesson. They're always, going to be, they're always going to be negative, I think. But the people who actually do that are not worth listening to in the first place because they're crazy. You know, they're just, they're just looking to attack and to hurt. And the fact is they can succeed in that quite easily. 
But the thing is that I'm interested in, and I think you explored this in um, one of your other novels, which I thought was very brave, was to actually look at the priesthood, a history of loneliness, and and to try and empathise, to try and put yourself in the shoes of the priests. In this instance, it's the priests, the ones who stood by. Yes. And the thing that interests me, as you just touched on it there, is that the people who are spewing that And I would do the same. It's all right to say, oh, just forget about them. Now, some of them are just bots, if you know what I mean. They're just people who go around doing that. But others are most probably genuine, ordinary, okay people. But for some reason, they turn into unfeeling monsters on social media. It's like it just gives them... Hashtag be kind. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's like, are you being kind? Really? Yes, absolutely. If you put those people in a room those conversations would not happen. Um, no. You know, and and empathy. I spoke to Ruth Gilligan. Ruth is part of this fabulous nonprofit organization about learning empathy. And so they get diverse, often opposed groups of teens, for example, together, you know, perhaps whites with Asians in an area where there's conflict. Uh, and they get each person to tell a story to the other. But then it's the person who's heard the story who has to tell that to the group. Uh, And so it's just a lovely way of, of inducing empathy and getting the person to experience that story, you know, and we just need more face to face contact. As you say that, it makes me think that one of the things I've said a lot actually over the last year about my brother's name is Jessica, the book about the trans teen, is that in real life, I received nothing but support and positivity. And online, I received nothing but negativity. And that I've always thought that was strange. And just as we're talking now, it makes me think to myself, maybe that makes perfect logical sense in a way. That's because in real life, no one's going to come up to you really and say, you're, you're a monster, you're this, that and the other. And online, people are more prone to saying mean things than positive things. Yes. Like, like you could almost say that the same person who was nice to me in real yeah. life could be the same person who was being horrible online it's possible and actually quite probably because I've seen something similar myself where someone who's nasty to someone and then we were in a room where someone and this person was well known rather than famous and this person went up and asked for a photograph with them oh yeah yeah you know so actually to be honest I think that when people are nasty to you and this sounds like something that my mother said you know when about bullies it says more about them but it does because I actually don't think that you or any subject of that abuse is even considered what is considered subconsciously, possibly, you know, I'm not saying someone goes out to this, is what's in it for me? You know, yeah. if I say this, I, not I only remember, will I get I, loads of likes. I remember when um, when that book came out and um, a new writer, someone who I, I hadn't met, I wasn't aware of really particularly, um, had been particularly vociferous online about it and was clearly going for the likes, you know, and yeah, yeah. Um, really slacking it off and saying some terrible things. And then I met him at an event and I think it was the first time we had met and I made no reference to it. And he was, I mean, he treated me like I was a Nobel Prize winner or something, you know, and and, uh, was just so, and all I think was, you hypocrite. I don't want to create a a scene, you know, but and I I also didn't just want to, I just didn't want to. I, no, I don't even free, want to acknowledge it. You know, like it's just free it's not worth it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought, it's, it's what a worth. bloody hypocrite. You've said all these horrible things online and now you're sitting in a room with me, like in a green room and you're sucking up to me like I'm a lollipop. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it, but it just makes you wonder, like, do you see that to the other person? Do, you, do they do you see that in themselves? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah I do struggle to understand. The one thing I'm passionate about is trying to get people to understand their brains so that they actually, in a way, in a very positive way, that they can start to actually reach their own potential. Because mm. I think the brain is the most extraordinary organ in the universe and artificial intelligence is considered, oh my God, the things we can do. But it can't replicate the magnificence of the human brain. It's only trying yes. to do that. Um, And everybody would queue up for the latest technology. And I just want to say to them, you have it in here. Now you just need to harness it and use it. And sort of this really is the whole point of this podcast in a way is to pick amazing brains and and, and to talk to people about how you have harnessed uh, yours to kind of inspire other people that they can. You know, not everybody can be a wonderful writer, but you can, as you explored through that, you know, making wonderful sandals, whatever is your passion your thing that going back to what we were talking about I think love has many facets and I feel very fortunate that I have found something that I love passionately and I think that can be very satisfying yes I I don't find it hard work because you know sometimes people say to me God you know like you're you're very productive you know you write a lot of books and stuff like do you never just want to take time off and I'd be like well no I don't because actually I really enjoy it and honestly like what else am I going to do with my day you know it's like I can sit on the sofa watching Netflix but it, it makes me happy um, when I'm in the middle of a book, when I'm working on something, or even when I'm working on like not even a book, if it's like a book review or an article, but, but when I'm engaged with, with words and I'm sitting at my desk working, you know, I, I just feel good about myself and I feel like it's been a good day, you know. so. But you see, to me, that's the simplicity of what happiness is. It's being in the moment. When we are unhappy, we're either going too far in the past are too far in the future. Of course, we have to think about the past to learn from it on occasion. Um, and we have to consider the future to plan and organize and do things. But we spend far too much of our days thinking about what just happened or, you know, mulling over things or thinking about the future and not enough time in the moment. Um, and the thing is, when you found something like you have, where, you know, some psychologists call it being in the flow, it's it's you are fully present in the moment when you are writing and time. And you have to be. Uh, some people would say it stands still. That's when the best work will come. You have to be completely fully there. Completely fully fully and, there. And I mean, people find other ways. Like I know, for example, Roddy Doyle writes with music playing. Um, oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't write with music playing. No. But you find your own way of doing it, you know. Yeah. And, and when you find it, you stick with it. I think if it's going well, yeah, you think, yeah. right, you know, if music plays and that, and I can write books like Roddy Doyle, then great. Um, and another person, if I, I can't do that, also great, you know, but you kind of don't mess it up once you've got your system in place. Yeah, yeah. And my husband keeps telling me it's no wonder I have back trouble because... <laughs> I write lying down. Okay, all right. You know, Um, but you know, it's funny. I've thought about that and tried to figure it out, and it just seems to flow better for me now. You know, as I said, I'm nonfiction, so Mm. well, it's somewhat similar in that I have to do the research, and I'm talking like I've written loads of books. I've written two, (laughs) but I'm dying to kind of get stuck into the next, and I would love to try fiction at some point, but just even the figuring out and the learning of it. But I was trying to figure out why. And I'm not the only writer that writes prone. I'm Barbara Cartland, Proust. You know, there's lots of writers I've written laying down. And then for me, trying to look at the brain part of it. So I you think know the Barbara way I was talking. Didn't she used to narrate it to her butler? Oh, so she did. <laughs> she would lie like on a chaise long with her with her little puppy in her in her dressing gown. Yeah, yeah and a glass yeah. of champagne, and she would say. And then she fell into his arms, and it was like <laughs> symphonies playing. 
<laughs> well, I do have the dogs as well. I have four rescue dogs, so they do pop their heads around my screen, etc. Can I talk about the 2080? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it is a spoiler, I think, because in fact, no. in every interview I'm doing, I'm saying that it ends on a space station in the future. So. Oh, OK, OK. But it ends on utopia, really, basically. Yeah. I, I'm seeing, There's no social media. Yeah. <laughs> um, no social media. Uh, there's no there's police no, force. There's no which, crime. The, yes, but I think that's also really interesting, actually, because obviously you would have written that before, you know, the latest Black Lives Matter in the US, which is rather interesting. But also what I find fascinating and something that you opened my eyes to, I have always felt that there is a problem with only naming two genders. And coming, first of all, from the perspective of intersex, something that interested me and has interested me for a long time. Part of my psychology degree, I studied human sexuality, but also as a child, some of the books that I picked off my dad's shelf, that's what interested me in the human condition in the first place was I first as a child read about hermaphrodites, Mm. which was, you know, in terms of animals and creatures and it comes right across and in humans. And now we refer to sort of intersex. And the thing that really bothered me was the surgical butchery that can happen to an infant when they're born because they don't present on the outside as either male or female. But the thing is, by puberty, whether they go either way, you need to know puberty because biological sex is not just a sex organ. You know, there's so much more X and Y and hormones and the whole lot, and they all change around puberty. And so that really always bothered me that a doctor and parents who must have been sometimes for the first time ever hearing that such a thing is possible, make a decision about a human being that just can drastically change their lives. And I thought, can we not just change the language? It's far easier to change the dictionary instead of just having male and female. You know, perhaps we have intersex or another word, but you kind of can't do that, certainly in Ireland. And I have spoken to people about this until there's recognition and legislation, you know, all that sort of thing. But what you really got me to broaden my thinking out, and I think your solution is much better. Let's just do away with naming it. We're just humans. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's my philosophy on life when it comes to everything else. We are humans before we are anything else. We are humans before the color of our skin. We are humans before our religion. We are humans before the country, culture, language we speak. We are just a species. And if we recognized that, we would solve many of the problems of the world. And I don't know why I didn't think of applying that to sex. Um, I think sex and gender are different, and I'm not even going to get into oh, those. it's so complicated, and it's a com- conversation. So. But which is why conversation has to happen, yeah. rather than just vilifying and and and. But you see, because that's the problem. Because you can have a conversation about that, and you will say one wrong sentence, uh, or you know, one sentence that comes out of your mouth, and you don't, you know, as we do, as we talk, not everything is curated before it emerges from yeah. our mouths. And you'll say one wrong thing, and you'll be that's it. You're finished. You know, you're yes. Yes. And and whereas we could make progress and could change minds and we are all learning. But I really liked that solution that we are humans. Yeah, I just think it matters a great deal. I mean, I thought you were talking about it's said in 2080. So that's 60 years from now. So neither of us are probably going to be there in 60 years. No, no, no. But but I'm planning and I hope you're planning on making the most of the rest of what we have. I mean, I said it to my husband once and I hope it doesn't have the same effect on you. But I feel that I I know for sure I've lived longer than I have left to live. That's Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm 49, so I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming late 80s, you know, even if I kind of give myself that. But anyway, even if I give myself... 
I'm 58. So yeah, I've lived more than I've left to live. And I find that very inspiring. It makes me want to use every single moment of the day to do stuff. Now, I said that to my husband and I spiraled him into a terrible place. He'd never thought of that. And now he feels very sad. Oh. You know, and I feel very bad, and I'm. I, I, don't, <laughs> I actually don't know. What, You're cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have come to the hour, which I am so grateful for you to have shared with me. Yeah, that was uh, did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah, look, it's left me thinking about that thing I was saying about the in real life versus online. That maybe that's just the nature of people that. I've always been very defensive about that thinking, but in real life, people are nice to me about this book. But maybe <laughs> maybe it just makes logical sense that actually they would be. So it's left me thinking that, you know, that... Like, oh, are you doubting that people like you? No, that, no, that, no, I don't mean it so much like that. It's just that it makes sense that people would be more polite when they're looking at you to your face, uh, as opposed to... to yeah, because you're a human so, being, you yeah. see. You're not just an image on a screen. And I mean, Caroline Flack comes to mind all the time for yeah. me, you know, would have thought that she was quite a strong individual but clearly she couldn't cope and we're all very fragile we really I, are know, I, always, I always try to get I was whenever I talk about social media with people I always try to get across the idea that it can be just one comment and it could be an innocuous nasty comment it could be something as simple as like you look really tired today or something or you know and it could just be that one thing that can push a person over the edge and you don't know when you will say it or when somebody yes. will say it to you where you could just say something without thinking and it can just be that little spark that will make somebody go I just can't can't take anymore. Yeah, I just wish we had more face-to-face contact safely because I think the world would be, well, in some instances, I, though I have to say, I've had a few instances, I didn't go out much during COVID at all. No, um, and a bit like you, as you said, I work from home most of the time anyway, so it wasn't hugely different for me. But also I am very aware um, that when we self-isolate, we lose a bit of our ability to empathise and connect. We lose a little bit of our social skills. And I'm actually seeing that because I am going out a little bit more now and going into shops and my patience with people. I'm crossing boundaries that I wouldn't have crossed before. I'm very cautious on social media now Um, and and I need to learn to, yeah, it's terrible because those things, I mean, I have, gosh, I have advocated for trans rights for such a long time and I think I have interesting things to say, but I won't say them online. It is a month. I'm just afraid. Um, You you do not want to get sucked into that online. No, no, absolutely not. But I have found that actually I'm being less of a polite person Maybe we need to relearn our social skills or something after. Oh, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have done an episode actually. I did one actually on loneliness. And actually what happens is when we do isolate, when we disengage, our brain has to go into self-preservation mode because we are social creatures. We need other people to protect us and look after us. So in order uh, for our brain to protect us, it actually doesn't let us sleep as deeply as we normally do. Also, our fear centers, that neuroplasticity that I was talking about, where you get more connections and neurogenesis, where you get more neurons, your amygdala, your fear centers actually grow bigger. They become enhanced. Your frontal lobes, which is the thinking rational part of your brain, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis get shut down. 
So that starts to shrink a little. Now, normally when you're in a fearful situation or when you're in a situation that might be somewhat threatening or could be threatening, your first response is for your fear center, your amygdala to kick in because that's got an immediate straight route so that you can jump out of the way of a car or, you know, run away or whatever to save your life. But then you have a second route that comes around through to your frontal brain that has access to all of the context and the information that can make a rational decision. Do I need to be fearful in this situation? Is this person really a threat to me? Oh, gosh, no. And then you can calm down your fear centers. One thing I do want to ask you is, do you have a tip for listeners? You know, this is kind of about surviving and thriving in life. Do you have any tip that you would like to share with people, perhaps, you know, that you've survived something in life and how you come to thrive? Either either one. Well, I mean, it's probably something a lot of people would say, but I do think exercise is really, really important. That uh, I have a little gym at the back of my house and I use it a lot, or even just going for a walk that if I get stuck on something in writing, uh, I will go for a walk and just getting fresh air into your lungs. It, it does help your brain and your mind, I think, quite a lot. As well as, you know, you feel a bit better anyway. But um, I do think exercise is so important. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. It's one of my kind of top tips for brain health. And actually, exactly, I would recommend that. Students studying anything, stop plowing through, go and have a run. Your brain will be reinvigorated. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, I think it's and, really and, important. And there's loads of research that shows you learn better, you remember more after the exercise than if you yeah. plowed through. Yeah, and then I feel better myself and I don't feel so kind of like stressed Slugish. or uh, worried about the past or, you know, I could just get on with my day a little bit better. So Good. Yeah. And be in the moment and enjoy it. Oh, John, thank you so much. Really that was nice just And best of luck with the book. I'm sure it'll be a huge success. Thank you. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Tune in for Thursday's Booster Shot when I will expand on exercising, giving you more insights from neuroscience on why physical activity can help transform your everyday brain into a super brain. I will include links to John's website and his new book, Traveller at the Gates of Wisdom, in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. If you have comments, they are most welcome. Send them to me at info at superbrain.ie. But please be be kind and remember the human on the receiving end of your words. None of us ever know what is someone else's last straw. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.